Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I am joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview either an analyst or someone we consider to be an expert on a single stock or an industry overall. And today we have on John Maxfield to talk about the banking sector as a whole. John is, without a doubt, um, a true expert in banking. Um, he has tons of historical data points that I found really fascinating that his de- his knowledge is that deep. Um, he has a lot of professional experience with some of the best bankers and C- bank CEOs in the United States as well. So you can just tell um, he's got tons of value to provide and, and he goes through really everything you need to know, I think, about banks and some of the, the misconceptions about banks as well. Um, anyway, today's episode is presented by Stratosphere. Stratosphere is our investing home screen for fundamental research. Brett and I literally use it every day. They're adding new tools all the time. Um, I know I took we, we spoke with Braden Dennis, the founder, and I believe they just launched bar charts as well for all their company-specific KPIs. So, uh, that's another, I guess, interesting tool about the uh, the platform. They offer all companies, or not all, but tons of company-specific um, KPIs where you really can't get them anywhere else, at least on a single page. They also have SEC file aggregation. They have traditional um, financials as well, um, fundamental charting tools for basically all companies. Um, and uh, it's completely free is the best part. So there's plenty more at Stratosphere. Just go ahead, check it out. It's stratosphere.io. That is stratosphere.io. If you want a paid plan, use promo code CCM and you get 15% off. If you're more interested in the platform, stick around after the episode. We did a little three-minute interview with the founder, Braden Dennis. But without further ado, here's our interview with John Maxfield. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. Today we are joined by John Maxfield. Um, you may know him as Maxfield on Banks on Twitter. Uh, at least that's how I first came across you. But John, I, uh, this is our first time chatting, and and I mostly just kind of read your your banking work, and I found it really really fascinating. So I guess maybe let's start with your background because listeners may or may not know who you are kind of how did you get into banking to begin with what piqued your interest about that sector yeah so sure great to be on here with you guys um so the thing that that piqued my interest in banking was um well my family we've invested in banks for four generations um so there's just been that kind of like in our blood a little bit but more specifically um Went to college, uh, went to law school, worked for a year for a federal judge, went back to get some more school, realized that if I was going to avoid getting a job, that'd be a lot cheaper if I just didn't have a job as opposed to if I paid like $20,000 in tuition a year and didn't have a job. So I stopped the LLM program halfway through, sold a bank investment that had been made on my behalf that turned out to be pretty lucrative, um, moved to Washington, D.C. to read books for as long as my money would last. Um and I did that. And that was right around the time I was going to read geopolitics. And in fact, even started a little group and um, 
and this is right around the time of the financial crisis. The financial crisis struck, and I thought, I don't understand why that what what just happened there. So I wanted to understand what happened. Um, figured that would take me like six months because I'd kind of studied different subjects all along in through my life, and I'd like kind of study them and then reduce it to a simple single sentence and then pack it away, and then you can pull it out at any point in time. And so I do that. Uh, figured banking was not one of the more complicated things I'd studied. Uh, but 12 years later, this gets us to the beginning of last year, 13 years later, or whatever that is. Uh, I still hadn't figured it out. So I was like, you know, what's going on here? And so I kind of gave it one last big push last year. And, and that kind of brings us up to today. All right. Beautiful. We're talking banks. And I think a lot of listeners, including ourselves, get intimidated when looking at banks. And I know there's a few things, you know, there's a lot of metrics that you got to look at that are very different than an operating business. But Starting at the beginning, what are the first things you would look at when you're evaluating a bank? What metrics are you looking at and why are they important? Yeah, zero metrics. I don't look at any metrics. I mean, I do. I look at all the metrics, okay? I look at all the metrics and I know all the metrics and like I've done all the homework. And um, But the thing about banks is a bank. So there's a bank in Chicago. Uh, it's called Washington Federal Bank for Savings that... Uh, Everything looked fine as making good money, growing reasonably at a responsible rate. And all of a sudden it failed out of the blue. And it turns out that like half its loan book was is built on entire fraud. And you can go back to the history of banking over and over and over and over and over again. And like everything looks fine when you're studying a bank. Everything looks fine. You're looking at all the metrics. You think you know what you're doing. You think you know what the metrics mean, blah, 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 blah. And then like they'll just fall out of the sky. And that's because a bank, um, for the most part, is gets to dictate what it's on its balance sheet. Um, not necessarily what it's on its balance sheet. I mean, it gets to dictate that to a certain extent within regulatory rules, but the valuation that, that that you put on that and when you impair that and all that kind of stuff. And so what you find is that like in banking, like you, you, you're looking at the rear view mirror, you're even looking at the data that's relatively recent and it just doesn't mean anything because everything is fine until it isn't. And so you, there's this tendency among bank invest investors to like get stuck up on this idea of metrics and all that kind of stuff. But like, it just doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. If, if, if you really know what you're doing, it doesn't mean anything. So what do you have to do? You have to, you have to assess the people that are running these organizations. Um, that's the only way you can get a sense for uh, whether those metrics are even worth taking a look at. Um, and if they are, you know, then, then, you know, you can maybe hang your hat on a little bit of that, but even then you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to rely on them too much. What do you, so yeah, I've heard you mention that before, which is like, you know, the most important thing is assessing management and, and their character. What are some of the things that make you think, okay, this person is honest. Is it kind of just gut feel or is there any specific characteristics? Well, I mean, I'm in a situation where I've, I know most of them at this point, and I've spent a significant amount of time with most of them at this point. Um, and so, you know, you develop uh, just like anything, right? You develop an ability to recognize something right away. Um, that doesn't mean you're 100% right. I mean, there's a lot of people who called and you would have never seen what happened at Wells Fargo happen at Wells Fargo, right? I was one of them. Uh, I didn't know John Stumpf. Um, uh, Buffett too. Buffett was, you know, Buffett saying their praise. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so like, um, but you know, you, what, so, you know, I kind of deal in a kind of a, 
I'll tell the story, but I can't tell you what bank it is or what banker it is. But um, I only deal with the best banks. Uh, and I only deal with the best bank because I've done all the analytical work. So I know what they are, public and private. And um, so I rarely, rarely, rarely deal with the banks that aren't any good. And once in a while, I will. And there is a merger of relatively large banks that happened. I can't tell too much about, say much more about that, or I'll be clear who I'm talking about. But um, I told the CEO of one of the banks that, uh, and he's going to be the CEO of the the combined institution, that I would um, write about their bank. I would write about the merger, even though they weren't as good of performing banks as I typically write about. But I would write about it all on one condition that they totally open up their kimono and I get everything I, I want whenever I want it and et cetera, et cetera. And they agreed to those terms. Um, and so I go in and I, it's actually really interesting because like it's a very live story right now that a lot, a lot, a lot of people know about. But um, so I go in and I do all my homework and I do deep, deep due diligence. Um, I mean, when I go and I sit down with these CEOs, I, mean, I know more about what their great granddaddy did than they did, you know, than they do. I mean, a lot more. I know a lot more about what their great granddaddy did than they do. I mean, I spend, I probably spend 10 hours a week on ancestry.com doing genealogical research on, on people. Um, and so I went in and one of the CEOs, it was interesting because the, the CEO is ostensibly going to be the CEO of the combined organization. He, um, we had his, uh, the, uh, the, my interview with him and, and we're buddies and my interview with him in their boardroom and, uh, everything went fine as normal. And he gave me one version of story. And then later on down the, down the road, a couple of weeks later, I had my interview with the other CEO who's ostensibly not going to be the CEO. And it was a completely different version. And I went so far, so far as I would go, okay, let's go talk about this conversation. When you guys met in the office, like, tell me exactly word for word. You say what he say, what you say, what he say, what you know what I mean? Like word for word, let's go through the whole thing. I mean, it was like diametrically opposed stories. And you think like, that's really interesting. And then you look at like, maybe why he, this second individual would be dishonest either to myself or the other CEO that he entered in the deal with. Um, And it all makes sense, but you know, what I do is I go in and I try to assess their honesty. Are they, you don't have to be Albert Einstein to run a bank. Okay. That's important to know. You, you, in fact, too much intelligence is, is actually a little bit dangerous in the hands of a banker because you want your bankers to be really, it's, a, it's horrible to say, to somewhat lack ambition because you just do the same thing over and over again, every single year, every single year, every single year, right? You get too ambitious. These people don't want to do that, right? Um, so the intelligence, that's a pretty low bar for banking. But it's the temperamental stuff that you want to know about, um, and it is the 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 honesty and and the credibility that you want to assess. And so you know you you, you can assess that by looking at them, seeing how they talk, get the, get the, get the feeling for that, or you can do it by you know getting to know them and asking them questions that and giving them an opportunity to be dishonest with you. Who are successful cases? Kind of like maybe some notable ones that you you look at and you say that's what a good banker looks like. It could be dead or alive. And um, maybe I, I heard you mention this on, on another interview, but was there any shared characteristics among them? Yeah. So I'll give you some names. Um, okay. So I'll just, I'll just lift, I'll just list off all the really good bankers is what I'll do for you. So um, Patrick Goggin runs, he's the president of Hingham Institution for Savings, H-I-F-S. Now they're getting pounded right now just because the, the the composition of their balance sheet. Um, so their name is getting pounded right now. But the the thing that Patrick knows is that um, in times like this, you just stick to your stick to your to your knitting, 
and just get through it and you'll be just fine. And Patrick knows that. And he's not going to, he's not going to respond inappropriately. I mean, just phenomenal bank. These guys, he, these folks just, their family owns like 40% of that bank. They know how to run a bank. A guy named Aaron uh, Graft down in uh, Dallas, Texas runs a cool bank, Triumph Financial, T-I-F-N or T-F-I-N. Triumph is just, it's just an amazing, it's just an amazing, amazing story. And Aaron is like, He's just one in a million. I mean, the, the way he thinks, um, uh, the way he approaches business, the 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 responsibility, uh, the the extent to which he 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 accepts the duty and responsibility of being a fiduciary, um, and just like his creativity is just he's just he's just off the charts. Um, they're basically taking they're basically rewriting the payment system in the U.S. trucking industry, which equates to eight percent of U.S. GDP. There's also another guy down in Texas named Scott Deeser. Scott runs a bank called First Financial Bank Shares, FFIN. It's in Abilene, Texas. Have you guys ever been to Abilene, Texas? Either one of you? Yeah, so yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't want to say anything disparaging about Abilene, Texas, but like you wouldn't go to Abilene, Texas unless like maybe like maybe you're in oil or something like that. It's like this is in West Texas. It's, it's hot in the summer. It's dry. There's rattlesnakes. There's like tumbleweeds, that kind of stuff, you know? Um, and, but his bank trades for like consistently four times book value. I mean, and a typical bank will trade for 1.4, one and a half as a book, Scott's bank. And it's like for 15 years, it's traded like that. And you say like, well, why is that? And you can go through all this analysis, but you know, one of the, one of the reasons is that, I mean, I, the primary reason I think is that the standard deviation of its return on, on profitability, return on equity, return on assets is lower than any other bank's standard deviation. And there's a theory in finance called variance strain. That helps explain this, but basically what it does is it makes that stock trade almost like a bond. It almost moves it down a notch in the uh, capital stack. And so like it can trade at a higher valuation because it's more consistent. Uh, so that's a really good bank and just how Scott does it and, and what Scott knows, uh, that's that's a really good bank. Um, there's a good bank up in your neck of the woods, Washington Federal. Uh, we were talking about this before the show, um, uh, Brett. Uh, the, the CEO of that bank, uh, Brent Beardall, just like, I love Brent Beardall. He's just like the, the most wonderful guy you'll ever meet. Uh, he just radiates this positivity and like, he's just the type of guy you would want leading. Like if you had a kid who was going to get a job at an organization, you'd want him to go, you'd want Brent Beardall to be the guy leading that organization. He's just that kind of guy. And I was actually telling Brett, uh, Ryan, before you you jumped on that Brett, uh, Brent was just recently in a plane crash. It's a very, very serious plane crash uh, in Provo, Utah. And like, I mean, he like he compound fractures, lay out his, his pelvis. I mean, like he's in a really rough shape, but like, um, the guy, I mean, he's like almost completely healed. I mean, he's, he's this amazing, amazing guy. Um, and so it's just great to, great to see him doing well. Uh, and that bank, if you rank it by, if you rank all the banks in the United States by all time, total shareholder return, Washington federal ranks seventh. So, I mean, this is like a really, really good bank. That's another good one. There's a bank up in Buffalo, New York, uh, called m and bank. Um, so if you, again, if you go by that ranking all time, total shareholder return. So you go all the way back to every, when every bank IPO'd. And you take the total amount of shareholder value, dividends plus share price appreciation that they've created since going public. There's two that stand, there's two that are way above the pack. Like there are a couple standard deviations out from even like the third or fourth ranks. And that's MT Bank up in up in uh, Buffalo, MTB, and a bank up in Kalispell, Montana called Glacier Bank or GVCI. Uh, 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 MT up in uh, Buffalo was run by a guy named Bob Wilmers. For, uh, from 1983 until he passed away in December 2017. And just full disclosure, I run a charitable thing for the Wilmers family. Um, so I'm, I'm very close with, with all of those folks. 
Um, but just a fantastic, fantastic organization. Um, created just a ton of value. Buffett, he's good, he was good friends with Buffett. Buffett was an investor in MIT, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other bank, um, in addition to MIT is, is Glacier Bank Corps. And Glacier is just um Glacier is uh and Glacier is run by a guy named Mick Blodnick. And Mick Blodnick is like, whenever I go into towns to visit bankers, like I always start asking people on airplanes, like, oh, tell me about this bank, tell me about this banker, and blah, blah, blah. And um, then I ask people throughout the town, like, tell me about this. Do you know this person or that? And generally the banker, even if it's a really good banker, will get you know, a couple of negative reviews just because for some reason or other. Mick Blodnick, everybody loves this guy. Everybody loves this guy. I mean, he is he is a special, special human being. Um, and uh, he runs, he he ran Glacier from 1998 until 2016. And so those those are really the the top bankers, uh, in my opinion. So in the public space, there's uh, there's some really good some yeah. private space, but in the public space. Right. No, that that's a great list. Sounds like <clears throat> some companies we're going to need to be studying uh, sometime in the near future. The yeah. question I think, so what, what you're getting at is that it's, yeah, everyone can look at a low book value. Everyone can look at a good return on equity. Everyone can say, okay, net interest margin is going to expand a few quarters from now, but it's really about the management teams that can react to a tougher operating environment and get through all sorts of market cycles and come out clean the other side. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Or someone that is not going to have that, you know, the classic one is the Lehman blow up the class, you know, some sort of bomb on their balance sheet. Okay. So um doesn't like uh, when people start like rattling off, like Nim's going to do this, Nim's mm-hmm. going to do that. I, I'm just like, I just check out. I mean, just like, I'm just like, okay, this stuff, that's not stuff that matters. I mean, like you, you, you have to be talking about the people. You just, you just have to be talking about the people because it just, nobody knows what NIMS, no, first of all, nobody knows what NIMS are going to do. Nobody knows what NIMS are going to do. Nobody. Okay. Number one. Um, number two, by the time they do it, it's too late to do anything about it. Okay. Because <laughs> like you have a balance, you're sitting on a bunch of assets and sitting on a bunch of liabilities. And there's like, that's, that's, that is what it is at that point. And so one of the things you see in banking is, you know, in fact, what you want is the opposite of somebody who's going to react. You want somebody who's just going to like, make the right decision at the right time and then keep their cool. So in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, we had a, a, there's an oil crisis in 1973, a second oil crisis in 1979 as a result of the Iranian revolution. Oil shoots way up, inflation shoots way up. Um, and when inflation shoots way up, Paul Vorkor comes in uh, and he jacks up the federal funds rate at the, at the Federal Reserve to take care of inflation. Well, when you jack up the federal funds rate, that's a short-term interest rate. What happens is that you had this thrift industry, so savings and loans. So what they did is they just held mortgages on their balance sheet, 30 year fixed rate mortgages on the balance sheet. And their average at the time was about 8%. Well, Paul Volcker jacked up the, the Fed funds rate to like 18%. And so that's where your, your deposits will go. So your deposits go up to like 18%. And they're only earning 8% on their assets. So they're upside down. It's, it's an inverted yield curve. So all these banks freak out. And um, they the legislature, the Congress allows them to start getting into commercial real estate, getting into junk bonds and all this other stuff. And so then these, these guys get into this crazy, crazy stuff. And then, which spurs a second crisis in the eighties, a commercial real estate crisis. And then a whole bunch, thousands of them fail. But you go back and you look and you say like, who are the banks that actually did well through all of this? It was the banks that just continued doing what they're doing. Like Washington federal is a perfect example. So so you had like most thrifts, what most thrifts did is they went, they said, okay, let's, because they got the right to go from fixed rate mortgages to variable rate mortgages. So then it could move with rates because they got that, that right was granted in response to the crisis. Okay. 
So most of them switched over to variable rate. But you look at like a Washington Federal, they said, no, no, no. We're going to just continue doing what we're doing. We're just going to continue writing fixed rate mortgages and keep portfolioing them on our balance sheet. Well, ever since then, rates have come down for the past. They came down for the, from starting in 81 or starting in 80. They, they came down for basically 30 years. So these guys were sitting with these mortgages on their balance sheet. They were yielding like 17%, 16%. And that thing was just coming down. And everybody else was switched over to variable rate. So they switched. So their rates were coming down. Well, the Washington Federal was, I mean, I mean, it was just, it was killing it. It was killing it. And so the lesson learned is that um, when there's time, when a bank runs into trouble and they, the, the inclination is to respond in some sort of um, aggressive way, the, the, what you want is the exact opposite. I call it inertia buyers, inertia bias. You want them to just, if they're doing the right thing, just hang tight and just continue doing the right thing. So what do you, how do you, like, if you mentioned that you had, uh, at the start of the interview, you mentioned that you made a lucrative bank investment when you were younger, I think. And what do you look at to determine beyond say, you know, okay, they've got a respectable management team that's honest and they do the right thing. How do you know when you think, okay, this bank's investable? Okay. I mean, I'll tell you the analysis I go through. The problem is that like, you can't just take my analysis. Somebody can't, somebody else can't, you can, you, you take it, but it wouldn't mean anything to somebody else. Like it means something to me because I study this so intensely, but like, well, the very first thing I do is I look and see how they performed in 08 and 09. How'd they do? Like, how did they do in the crisis? And what you're testing there is not how they did in the crisis. What you're testing there is how they do in 04, 05, and 06, when everybody was going bonkers, doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. You say, did these guys behave themselves, right? Because that is what you need to know, okay? Did these guys behave themselves when like times were good? Because that's the hard thing to do. And that's not, not a lot of people are able to do that. So I, that's the very first litmus test I go and look at. How are they, how did they do in the crisis? And then after I look at how they did in the crisis, I'll take their data back as far as it can go, as far as it can go. Um, I mean, so typically I can, you can typically get it back to, you can at least get it back to 92 because the FDIC has the data going back to 92. Oftentimes you can take it back to the eighties, sometimes in the seventies. Um, I, you want the whole picture. How, what is the culture of this organization? Is the culture to go wild when everybody else is going wild or is the culture that is, um, um, respected and appreciated at this organization? Is it that we are going to, to hang tight? When the market is high, because we are going to be confident that the market is going to fall because it is cyclical and it's going to continue to be cyclical. There's no reason to think it's not going to be cyclical. Um, that when it does fall, we're going to pick up and then more than make up for the lost market share we lost, the market share we lost at the top. Um, so that's you're looking at how they do through cycles. Because here's the thing you have to understand about banks because they're so leveraged and because they use fractional reserve lending, which means that, like, you know, you only hold. Um, so let, if you're, you have a hundred million dollars in deposits at your bank, you're only holding like whatever ten million dollars in cash. So all those deposits come at you, you know, to withdraw at one time, and you're over. I mean, you're liquid, and you're basically insolvent by as a result of illiquidity. Um, and so you have got your margin for error is so 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 small um, that like you just you, you just you just have got to have people at the top who are not prone to making errors, who are not prone to those of those emotional and temperamental ups and downs um, with the cycle. They've got to be the ones who can sit there in cold blood, like analyze uh, the facts that are before them. So you mentioned that GFC is uh, sort of a first litmus test. How have things changed 
since the GFC, maybe regulatory wise, like does it, do you think there's a lower probability of bank failures today because of it? Um, or do you think it'll ultimately be kind of more of the same and we'll learn the lessons again? Well, I mean, yeah, what we see with bank, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are bank failures come and go. Like if you go all the way back to the beginning, so back to seven, basically let's go back to 1800, right? You see these spikes. There are these 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 financial crises every single decade. Huge huge spikes and failures every single decade. And then you come into uh, that continues to the Civil War, continues through the Civil War through Gilded Age. Then you come up to the the uh, the Great Depression. The Great Depression is a huge one of these, right? You have thousands and thousands of banks fail each year. And then there's a period after the Great Depression that lasts from like uh, 1950. Let's call it 1950 to 1973-74 where they call it the great moderation where they basically don't have any failures we have pedestrian profitability and basically no failures um but then in 1973 is when the oil crisis strike and that sets off this whole new thing um and then you have you have a bunch of failures in the 80s and failures in the beginning of the 90s as a carryover from the 1980s and then you have failures in the in the in the financial crisis failures will always be here as long as we have banks okay they'll always be here we don't know you know they come in they tend to come in groups we don't it's hard to predict when those are going to happen but like it's just failures is something that you just you, it just always have to be in your head with banks they can always fail just you just have to assume it's just like okay this is this type of investment class or security like is subject to going to zero like you just have to come to terms with that you know what i mean um uh, if you can't come to terms with that then like you shouldn't be investing in banks you know um and so you know you, you know you yeah, because there there will be. I mean, I guess to back to your question, like, will the instance rate of failures go down? I mean, like, well, there are fewer banks, so there'll be fewer failures. Will the percentage of banks that fail go down? I I, I don't know, but there'll always be failures, and so like that's what matters. Um, in terms of like how the, the 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 landscape has changed more generally since the financial crisis. Yeah, I mean, there's like more regulation, right? Dodd Frank and all that kind of stuff. The the CFPB and like and all those things. But here's what you need to understand: it's like you know, you know, we've all studied economics, right? And so we know that there's a cost of capital. You have to earn a certain level, right? To, to earn your keep in the, in the markets, in the public market, in the capital markets, right? If you don't earn a certain level, like then that capital is going to be allocated elsewhere, right? Well, like just it all, the way that it works is that like, it just readjusts to a new equilibrium. The new regula regulations come in, it will readjust to that equilibrium. Some banks will sell out. Some banks will just close down. Some banks, whatever it is, like the, the, the market will readjust. So where they your good banks will earn their cost of capital. Um, and so it's just a matter of finding those banks that are able to earn their cost of capital and then, uh, and then you know, sticking with them over a long period of time because you're never, ever going to get fast returns with the bank. And you shouldn't or else you're, it, it, you'll be in trouble. What are some of the things where if you see it, you go like a red flag pops up in your mind? Or yeah, are there yeah. any characteristics? Probably a lot of those. Like, you're like, okay, yeah, this is something's going on here. Yeah, rapid growth, really, really rapid growth. Out of market lending, out of market lending is bad news bears because you go into a new market, you know, you're a bank and whatever, San Antonio, Texas, and you've got a whole bunch of deposits, you can't deploy profitably in San Antonio because it's just the market there's just not much going on down there. So you decide to go to Vail or whatever, you know, like when like it's white hot. 
I mean, you're going to get the worst loans because the, the lenders that are there know all the people who are, they know the people, they know the property. They're going to take all the good ones. You're going to get the bad ones. So out-of-market lending is a really, really uh, big one. Another big one is um, concentration in fad type assets. So something that's like cool and happening at the time. Yeah. So the the other bank is bank is out east called Bank Prov, and what Bank Prov was doing is they were actually lending money to uh, these cryptocurrency mining op operations. And so when when you know the cryptocurrency prices tanked, I mean it just got it just got killed. Their CEO got kicked out. The CEO's son was running like the cryptocurrency stuff, and he was a total clown. And um, so that 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 didn't go well for them. Um, although they did survive, which surprised me actually. So. Today, interest rates are rising at the fastest pace, I guess, in history um, or maybe recent history. How has that affected the banking sector? How do you see it affecting the banking sector? I know you talk with a lot of the executive teams. How are they reacting to that? Like, I know it's kind of a big mystery for people outside the industry right now of how big of an impact it's going to have. So what are your thoughts on that in general as we move forward the next, say, year or two through this I don't want to call it weird because we are kind of going back to real interest rates that are not zero, but just a different operating environment that we've been in. Well, I mean, everything is different, right? I mean, everything's always different and everything's always unpredictable and everything's always unforeseeable. So you have people say like, oh, it's so unforeseeable. And I'm like, it's always unforeseeable. Like, when was it foreseeable? You know what I mean? Tell me. I, I'm curious. So like, you know, I've never heard of that. So it's like, it's the same as it always has been. Um, it's just different because it's different. You know what I mean? So that I, I would start with that. Um, let, let me let me answer it a slightly different way. So if you go back to when I, the reason I got it, when I started studying banking, I was like, I'm going to study it. And I'm going to, like I said, reduce it to take six months to reduce it to a simple nugget that like captures the core essence of banking. Then I'll move on to another topic. So I, I'd go through all these different topics and I would kind of learn them and kind of reduce them to a simple thing. And so when I got to banking, I thought like, oh, I, I, this won't take very long. So I'd go after it for about you know, a while, 12 years later, which is like 24 times longer than I thought it was going to take me. Um, I still hadn't figured it out. There was a theory and the, there's a flaw in the banking and there's a flaw in the theory is what I discovered over the past year. I did a really intense knowledge consolidation process. And, uh, and so I figured out what kind of what it was and kind of was able to simplify it to this, to that, that one simple nugget. And what that one simple nugget is, is that the banking is a business of abundance. Okay. It's a business of abundance. This is a really important thing to understand about banking. This is a critical, fundamental thing to understand about banking. Every other business is a business of scarcity. Scarcity is the primary constraint, okay? You are a, a bookstore. You're scarcity of demands. You have scarcity of customers walking in your doors. Scarcity, when the Harry Potters came out, no bookstore could get enough Harry Potters. There's a scarcity of the product. Um, there's a scarcity of real estate. There's a scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. That is the primary constraint in every other business. The primary constraint in banking is abundance, which doesn't seem to make sense, right? But the reason is it's because money is an intangible thing, okay? So like, it's not like a book where it's like, if Barnes & Noble dropped the price of books to 10 cents, I'd buy a lot of books, okay? But I wouldn't buy a million. Right? There's just, I wouldn't, even if I had the money to, where I couldn't, where would I put them, Right? Money, if the, if, the, if the price of money, if the interest rate is low enough and the terms are easy enough, you literally can walk through a mathematical proof to see that you would want an infinite amount of money, okay? And so that what that means is that because the demand for money is infinite, that puts the entire onus on 
the banker to control, to govern their own growth. And there's, if there's one thing we know about humans is that we are not good at governing our own growth and controlling fear, feed, fear, uh, greed, and envy. Okay. And so like, that's why it's so hard to be a banker. And so when you go back through all time, what you realize is that there's these periods of these surges in liquidity, okay? Surge of liquidity that comes in either from Europe or comes up the Federal Reserve, pulls it out of the ground or whatever it is. There's a surge in what I call novel liquidity. So this, And then right after that surge of liquidity, what do you have? A surge of failures or crisis. And so that's just how it goes. Going back to 1800, you have one. 1809, you have a crisis. You have, we have a surge in liquidity in the, in the, eight, in the 18, like six, seven. In 1809, you have a crisis. Same thing in the mid-teens, and then 1819, you have a crisis. Same thing in the 20s, same thing in the 30s, same thing in the 50s. I mean, it's just every single decade, surge liquidity, surge crisis, surge liquidity, crisis. Well, what we've seen now is that ever since the Federal Reserve came in, the, the amount of time between when there's a surge of liquidity and when that crisis strikes is lengthening out, okay? But it's still there. Liquidity never just like quietly excuses itself out the side door. It bangs its way out the front door. And that's important to know. And that the reason important to know is because everything that's going on right now is a function of one thing. It is a function of all the liquidity that was poured into the system during the COVID crisis, because everybody was afraid because, you know, GDP fell by 30% on an annualized basis that first quarter or the second quarter, I think it was the second quarter of uh, 2020. And it was worse than the Great Depression. I mean, like, so the Federal Reserve and the fiscal, the, the folks in response in charge of fiscal policy came in really, really heavy with everything. Well, they put in so much, it's like $8 trillion in increase in deposits or something like that. Never seen that, that, that rapid of an increase in liquidity. And so what we know now is that we don't know how it's going to make its way out of the system, but we know it's going to at some point and it's not going to be pretty. It could be five years, could be 10 years, could be 20 years, but um, that's, that's the thing to keep in mind. Curious what you think about digital banks versus some of the more traditional banks. I know a lot of people that's kind of a more hot topic today is some of the you know, um, I think I think the term is neo banks, um, businesses or, or banks that were digital first. They they don't have a physical footprint. Do you think that's an advantage in today's world? Is there sort of like an innovator's dilemma here, where the physical footprint is is maybe baggage for some of these traditional companies, or do you think it could also be an advantage for them as well? So I mean I I won't mince words. I think the people who run those digital banks are a bunch of clowns, um, by and large. Um, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. They focus on things that are that seem cool right now, but then like you know the chickens will come home to roost when the cycle turns the other the other way. Um, you now banking is about banking is a real is a retail business. You're out gathering up money from people who have extra savings. All these people across the country, and then you're giving it to people who are trying to grow businesses. Um, yes, there's a time. Yes, everybody has to have a di digital distribution system. Right, you have to have an app. You got to have a website. You got to be able to move money over Zelle and move money over, you know, Venmo and PayPal, whatever. You get, you've got to be able keyed into that. You know, tied into that. But all the banks are, all the banks are are tied into that. Um, and so these these kind of niche players. I mean, you could go back to the 1990s. There's a bank called NetBank. Okay, NetBank was like going to take over all of banking. Okay, you know what happened to NetBank? Because it is the first like internet bank, right? It failed. NetBank failed. Okay. Clowns, bunch of clowns. Like you just over and over and over and over again. It's the same story. And you, you go back in different iterations, not even the internet. Like 
banking by, you know, like putting a hole in the side of your building and your car driving up, like that didn't kill banking, but some people thought that was kill banking. The phone, people thought the phone, phone banking was going to kill banking. Okay. Phone banking didn't kill banking. They thought the internet was going to kill. The internet didn't, they thought the app was going to kill. App hasn't killed it. Like it's just, you know, it's just hyperbole. It's a bunch of hyperbole. It just, it's better to assume that, you know, I don't know if you guys know Morgan Housel, but one of the things he talks about a lot is that like, it's better to assume that things are going to stay the same than the, than they are going to be different. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think it comes back to, as we're kind of wrapping up this conversation, I, I don't know if Ryan has any other questions that internet bank, digital only bank or big, you know, legacy bank with more of a physical footprint. It's, it's the people who are running it. Are they rational? Are they going to be a hot headed person or are they not going to be? Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. Yep. I think that is most of the questions we have, Brett, unless you have any more. This was, this was fun, John. I think that's all the questions we have and it, it covers the industry really well. I hope a lot of people got value out of this. Where can they, uh, where can they keep up with you? If, uh, what are some places to do that? Well, they can come to my house, but I shouldn't give my address out probably. Please uh, do not do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody would come, but uh, no, they can find me. The, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Maxfield on banks. I don't post a lot, but I, I, I try to post, I try to be selective and, and post good stuff. Hey, okay. here's one final one. Where do you, where you research the industry a lot, where are some places to go to learn about banks? Because I think people don't even know. They look up Investopedia and they're like, okay, I got something, but where did you go to learn? Oh, oh you sent me a reading list. Yeah. Did I send you what? Did I send you that? Yeah. You sent me that reading list. Maybe I'll, I'll uh, let me tell you a story. A, let me tell you a quick link. story. We'll, we'll end with this story. I haven't, I haven't told this stuff publicly, this story publicly. This is a good one though. So Brent Beardall, the CEO of Washington Federal, see, they, they redid their offices. He said, why don't you come up and see it? So I went up and checked it out. He said, I'll oh, come check out this room. I said, okay, let's go check it out. So he opens up this room that's on the interior of the office. And this is like right down on like Fifth and Pike, okay? And uh, you guys know that because you guys are from Seattle, right? And so um, he had, he built a, li- they built a library in there. It's like, like this beautiful wood paneling and like, like comfortable chair. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's like, but I was in there. I was like, this shelves room. I said, Brent, I mean, uh, it's not a library. This is a room with empty shelves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I'll, I'll, I'll build you a library. I'll, I'll curate a library for you. Basically I'll just cop, I'll just replicate my library. Cause I have a substantial, probably one of the larger private banking libraries in the country. And so, uh, so I said, okay. So, um, I go and I, I, I decide to just put some stuff out on Twitter. Say like, you know, Hey, does anybody know of any books that you think that I don't have? And a couple of people mentioned, so they're like, Oh yeah, you know, here's a couple of books. And I was like, okay, but no, not, not very many, but then I got a, direct message from an anonymous account. And they said, basically, you know, like, Hey, that's a pretty nice list. You got, I mean, I had like 250 books on it. It was 300 books. I mean, it was quite a few books, you know, he's, he's like, it's a nice list, but I have 300 more than, than you that you don't have. And I was like, that's, that's a lot. That's like double, you know? And he's like, I got another list of 500. I'm not going to share with you because I don't want to compete with you. They're on my prospect list. And I don't want to compete with you for them, which I thought was funny, but like we have since like, yeah, there's been since the competition in the bookmark. So like now I'm like, oh, now I see why. But um, so I was like, well, you know, I got to get to know who this guy is. So, um, but he wouldn't reveal who he is because he's a very big and important guy in the industry. Very, 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 very big, important guy in the industry. Not a household name, but incredibly powerful. Um, uh, more powerful than like a Jamie Diamond. And this guy's big time. And and so uh, we get to going back and forth. And I ask a series of questions and you can ask a series of questions. You can get up to the very top, like, 
because I've talked to so many different folks. I know so many, I know a lot of like proprietary stories. And so you can like kind of climb your way up to the top and say like, how far can this person go? What kind of knowledge does, does this person have? You know, you can get it to where you can like, you know, story, like maybe only eight people know, you know what I mean? Like, and this guy was the first person I'd ever talked to who can go all the way, who could go all the way to the top. And I thought, and I think he could probably can, he could have continued going. So I was like, Oh God, like I got to get to know who this guy is. So I said, okay, like you, you got to tell me who you are. And I said, well, I said, well, listen, he's reluctant. So listen, I'm going to give you the name of three CEOs and I'm going to give you their cell phone numbers. And you just call them right now and ask them about me if I can be trusted. And so uh, I said, okay, let me hear the names. And I said, okay, no, let me get the cell phone numbers. And he said, don't worry about it. I already got them. I said, okay. Um, and so maybe two hours later, the CEO start calling me, Hey, John, like this guy's calling, what's he, what's this all about? You know what I mean? So I don't, I don't really know, but, um, but, but the third one called and I said, well, why don't you give me his, he called you on a cell phone. Why don't you go ahead and give me a cell phone number and I'll call him, you know? And so I called him and I said, Hey, you know, I can't say this guy's name out publicly, but, um, like, Hey, you know, like it's me, you know, it's nice to meet you, you know? And uh, he's like, yeah, I was, well, I was waiting for your call. And he said, well, listen, when I was cataloging my library for you, I found that I had eight duplicates. And I was like, okay. He's like, well, do we, do you want me to send them to you if you, yeah, and you donate a hundred dollars to charity, my choice. I said, done. If you'll send them to me, I don't care. Whoop. I think it'd be like, skip the dog. I want those. You know what I mean? She says, okay. So I give my address and I, I agree to give him money. So I'm in the period, I'm in this, in this process where I'm studying banking 18 hours a day for literally like six months. Okay. And like, and it's like, it's crazy. It's almost, I'm in like the fog of war, just like from like six in the morning until like two in the morning. I mean, just like all freaking day, give myself one hour off each day. That's it for months and months and months. So I'm in this fog of war. My wife comes up and she's holding this thing in her hand. And she says, so what's that? She's like, what, what do you tell me what this is? I don't know. I clear. I left the house like three months. You know what I mean? Like she's like, well, it's mouthwash. <laughs> I said, well, you know, like if I left the house, certainly wouldn't be going to get mouthwash. She's like, it's prescription mouthwash. And I'm like, well, this is definitely not getting a prescription mouthwash. She said, well, there's a whole box downstairs for you. So there's a what? She said, yeah, there's a whole box. I said, who's it from? And she said, that guy's this person's name. I said, no kidding. Okay. So I go down there to look at it in my own eyes. Sure enough, there's a whole box, prescription mouthwash, sitting in my living room from this individual. And there's eight of them. Remember, he's going to send me eight books and there's eight prescription mouthwashes. So I'm like, oh, God, the hell is this? You know what I mean? The hell is yeah. this? And uh, so I like, you know, I like weighed it to make sure the weight matched. I don't know, maybe somebody's took the pay banking books, put eight <laughs> prescription mouthwash. I mean, like, who the hell would do that? I don't know. But like, you're just like, I don't want to call this guy and be like, hey, like, I don't know this guy, you know, very well. So eventually I get to the point, I'm like, I just got to call him. Maybe he's trying to send it to his mom and like, he sends everything in eight because maybe he's like into Chinese theology and like eight is like a lucky number in China. I don't know. I don't have a clue, you know? And so I call him and say, hey, you know, I, this is like a weird, weird question. I don't really know you, but did you send me? a bunch of mouthwash, <laughs> you know? And he said, no, but the way he said it, it was clear that, that, uh, that he had. And, um, so eventually later on, we, I get to know this guy quite well and he's very generous with his knowledge and everything with me. And he's a wonderful guy and very much value his relationship. And, uh, later on, I eventually broached the subject with him. I said, Hey, I gotta be honest with you. Like that was a pretty cool thing that you did, you know, sending me that thing, you know, I said, but I want to hear it out of your mouth why you did that. Okay. And this is what he tells me. And we're sitting down like this, like really fancy restaurant. I mean, like, like really fancy. Okay. Like members only type of thing. And this is what he says to me. I hope I can swear because I'm going to. He says, I just wanted you to know that I never wanted to hear my fucking name come out of your fucking mouth. <laughs> so I just gave you mouthwash. <laughs> just gave you mouthwash. Right. That's pretty good, huh? Wow. That's, good. that's a, that's a great way to end it. <laughs> there you guys go. It.
it's an elaborate. Yeah, it's that's that's something. The, uh, uh, you guys the, take care. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, uh, I'm going to throw a disclosure on this as we sign off. So uh, for everyone listening, remind you that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, John, for joining us. It was a pleasure. And we'll see you all next time. I am welcomed by the founder of our exclusive sponsor, Stratosphere.io, uh, Braden Dennis. Braden, welcome. I wanted to basically give listeners that are interested in Stratosphere more context around what the platform is. So let's start there. What is Stratosphere? And then why did you decide to start it? Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be sponsoring the podcast as, as a listener myself. I like the deep dives. I like the different guests, the different perspectives on uh, some interesting companies. So I think it's a good concept for a podcast, which is kind of what led me down to making Stratosphere in the first place, which was I was making content online and frustrated with the tools that were available to me. So I started building uh, a very scrappy version of the product just for free, just to figure out like, how can I overlay 10 years of financial side by side you know, up to 35 years we have now? And how can I actually build out a proper database of, of company KPIs that are not just revenue, but like, if you're looking at like Costco, like how many warehouses do they have? How many paid members are, are in like our Costco members? Or, you know, if I want to do a comp against like the streaming, like how many Netflix subs versus uh, HBO plus discovery plus, no Disney plus, like how do I build out proper comps of those? Because those are the metrics that actually move the business. Those are the ones that actually move the needle more than any like gap financial metric you'll find. And so it started off as just purely a passion project. And I figured let's just make the leap into entrepreneurship and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, it brought, brought us here today. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it, it is the stuff that you can't find anywhere else, at least not in a, I mean, you could find it page by page and on their financials. Exactly. But. You can go through 35 uh, PDF filings and find it, be, be my guest. And, and, that, and that's basically what we did for a long time. So what do, I guess, maybe describe the pricing model so people know, sure. but uh, you're going to say it, it, there's, there's a free platform. What do free users get? Yeah, good good thing. Cause our, our mission was to always build a free platform. And and so we really kept true to our mission and give like an amazing platform for free, which gives you 10 years of financial statements on 40,000 global securities. So we don't list you just to US securities, it's on global stocks. We give you a watch list, the screener, comparisons on competitors, fundamental charting up to 10 years filings, transcripts. You can look at the press releases right inside the app, news, ETFs, funds, super investors, hedge fund letters, investor holdings, and financial calendars. Those are all the features you'll get on uh, on the free tier. Now, if on, on the, the middle tier, the personal tier, you're going to unlock up to 35 years of financials and just kind of like nice to have, like quality of life, like notifications being built in. Um, price targets for building models, 
uh, like business owner mode where you can hide prices, like kind of like just that next level for, for individual investors who want to level up. And then the the top tier is for like investment teams and professionals who want to unlock that KPI data and request KPI coverage as well. Like a firm will be like, here, we want these 10 names in our coverage and in your coverage. And then you'll have basically our, our entire universe that we're looking at, which is great, right? Because like earnings season comes around and we have it updated within 15 minutes when Netflix comes out with their net subscriber ads, like it's right there in one place, uh, especially easy to handle around the, the peak of earnings season that, that matters a lot for these people. And so we have a, a premium tier for that as well. That's the, that's the three plans that are available today. And now a perfect time to shameless plug our code. If you use CCM, you get 15% off any of the paid plans, but I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, if you're interested, please go ahead and check out stratosphere.io. We'll, we'll have a link in the uh, description as well, but uh, thank you, Braden, for joining us. Ryan, keep it up. I really like what you and Brett are doing and uh, I'll be listening along.